Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, the Victorian Lower House passed a new bill determining how state governments can man- man- manage rather, pandemics into the future. The Public Health and Wellbeing Pandemic Management Bill 2021 will allow the Premier to make pandemic direct declarations and extend them for three months at a time, with the Health Minister able to issue pandemic orders once such a declaration has been made. In doing so, it seeks to remove a power that well, has been vested with the Chief Health Officer, bringing Victoria more more into line with other jurisdictions like New South Wales. But there is much more to the bill and it's already been the cause of some controversy. To help us understand it a little bit better, I'm joined by Associate Professor at Melbourne Law School, Will Partlett. He's written a really um, insightful piece for the conversation on this very topic. Will, welcome to Triple R. Thanks for having me, Dylan. And so let's start with some basics. Why do we need new laws determining how pandemics can be managed in this state? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. I mean, I think we need new laws, and actually not just New, not just Victoria, New South Wales. I think all of the Australian states probably need new laws. It's because the pandemics pose a different type of challenge that, that, you know, in terms of calling, you know, generally we think state of emergency laws that have existed in Victoria, New South Wales, and other states are looking at kind of bushfires or floods, which generally don't last as long and that require different types of responses. Obviously, pandemics last longer, they're more protracted, and they require different types of powers. So I think a fit-for-purpose law is, is very appropriate, um, and, you know, and, and Victoria is, is embarking on that process as, as we speak, as you mentioned. Yeah, and, and one of the characteristics of Victoria's response has been the, the decision-making powers given to the Chief Health Officer, Brett Sutton. Those similar powers don't exist for the, the Chief Health Officer in New South Wales, for example. Why does Victoria differ from, uh, you know, to stick with that comparison, New South Wales in this regard? Well, I think, I mean, they chose in the original Public Health and Wellbeing Act, they originally chose what, we, what we've had for the last 18 months, 20 months, which is a kind of technocratic approach with a chief health officer making decisions and making orders based on the public health advice. Mm. Uh, but as you, as you mentioned, I mean, New Zealand and New South Wales have a, have a different approach in their, in their public health acts or equivalents, uh, which, is, which it gives it more of a political flavor, you know, you're giving it to the minister, um, so, you, so, and, and in, it's, what Victoria is doing is essentially uh, aligning itself, at least in that respect, with the New South Wales and New Zealand approach, which is you give these powers to uh, to the premier and to the and to the, and the and to the health minister, which is a more political form of you know, and, and they're responsible to parliament; they they have to answer for their discuss, decisions in parliament and so forth. So, it's a more of a political rather than a technocratic approach, and that's really what Victoria is uh, proposing in this law. Yeah, and there's there's quite a lot in the law, and, and I know that it's sort of was introduced relatively quickly, and and um, people outside the the government didn't necessarily have a, a bit of a, you know a real heads up about what would be included in it. What are some of the the headline changes that would come about, um, you know, if and when this this passes? Yeah, I mean it's a good question. I mean it's, it's over a hundred pages. It's not exactly a fun kind of holiday <laughs> weekend read kind of thing, um, but it it is an extremely important piece of legislation, and, and you know I think. I mean, it's impossible for me to give you a kind of a even, I mean, I'll give you some headlines. I mean, yeah. there are some things in there, particularly, I mean, some things in there that I think people have raised red flags or some concerns about is, is the extent to which pandemic orders issued by the health minister can engage in discrimination. Mm. Um, and in fact, uh, one 
Part 165AK gives the pandemic order may differentiate between people on the basis of their characteristics, attributes, or, or circumstances. Now, there is some concern, I think, and some rightful concern that this, you know, we, we do know from studies that over the last 20 months that disadvantaged communities have been policed more heavily than, uh, you know, and, and in particular, and, and arguably, you know, more police powers being used in those areas. And so I think we should be a little bit concerned about this. Now, many of these powers are necessary. Um, and I think, you know, we need to kind of think about, you know, how, how broad these powers are first, and then second of all, how we then, and I think even more importantly, how we then engage in some sort of oversight over the use of these powers. Because as you mentioned in the front, the, the Premier has the power to essentially an unlimited number of, of renewals of the pandemic declaration, uh, which then gives the health minister these powers. So, so we want to have, as these kind of pandemic declarations go into effect and may go into effect for some time, some form of oversight to ensure that they're exercised in a non-discriminatory way, that, they're, that they don't lead to too much um, policing of particular um, communities. I mean, another headline that's come out that people have pointed to is, is significant uh, detention powers. Yeah. Now, of course, we need detention um, uh, as part of this, but, of course, that is a significant uh, l- you know, limitation on liberty. Up to two um, years jail time, I think. Is that right? Yeah, and of course, and they've also created an aggravated offence uh, for for failing to, which is, which leads to up to two years. So you know, and so, I mean, detention can be done essentially without any obviously conviction. This is essentially uh, that provides the opportunity for authorized officers who are who are, who are nominated by the health uh, minister basically to detain individuals if they if they uh, don't comply with particular orders. So we're seeing both you know both new kind of detention powers outside of a court system as well as potential for really significant aggravated offenses up to two years in prison. So, you know, uh, yeah, and, and finally, there's not a lot in there to protecting any kind of form of safe protest, um, you know, if, we, if people want to get out and actually use their, use their, make their voices heard. So I think there are some concerns, I think, then about the substance, but in particular about, and then how about, about how we actually over, can, can actually carry out some oversight over this, ensure that it is um, carried out in a, in a, in a kind of responsible way. Yeah, and, and these are sort of big issues, aren't they? Because, you know, one can understand, just looking back at our experience over the past 18 months, how pandemics really touch all facets of society. So you can imagine why there might be a benefit to having somewhat broad or, or vague language as part of a, a law such as this, but it's really about how they're implemented, aren't they? And, and whether they do discriminate, um, you know, against individuals for particular reasons. Particularly, I mean, you know, and it, it's, you know, discretion is necessary, right? In particular, in, in pandemics, you need quick responses. You know, obviously, you need to be able to respond quickly. The government needs that power, and the executive needs that power. Um, but when that discretion is carried out, we want to make sure that as afterwards, we kind of figure out what, uh, how can we make this discretion better? And of course, you know, the classic example, this was last July 2020, when the government shut down, essentially sealed off the North, uh, North Melbourne and Flemington uh, housing tower. Yeah. Um, which, which the Victorian ombudsman has said was actually clearly unlawful. Um, and, you know, so, so there are examples where this has happened in the past. So I think we do need to be a little bit concerned about how this vast discretion that's been given, which in many cases is, is probably necessary, but at least some way of ensuring real oversight of this. And that's my main concern is that there isn't, you know, they've created an in, a, a committee that is fully appointed by the, the minister, um, which I don't think is necessarily going to provide the, the robust kind of oversight that's necessary with the extent to which there is 
discretion being given in this piece of legislation. Yeah, and so what would would that kind of oversight look like ideally? You're, you're proposing in, in your conversation article a kind of cross-parliamentary oversight committee, which which I suppose would, would be more than just an advisory, advisory role. It would actually be able to um, compel the government to, to make or, or sort of change approaches to, you know, on the basis of, of what they had done with these orders in place? Yeah, I mean, so the model really is what New Zealand set up um, in, in, I think, in April 2020, which is the Epidemic Response Committee, which was a cross-party um, committee, which included members of the opposition, included cross-benchers, included members of the actual government itself. And, and what it does, it actually didn't have a whole lot of power to disallow or to take away, you know, actually cancel orders. But what it did has, is power to investigate, mm. power to call witnesses, power to, to ensure transparency, because I think that's the most responsible way. I mean, I don't really think that parliament, parliamentary committees can really be in the, in, in the process of actually cancelling these orders, because, of course, that could cause chaos mm, in a pandemic yeah. response, I think. But, I mean, in terms of providing some form of oversight and saying, okay, well, let's get it right next time. Like, you know, what went wrong here? Because, let's you know, the point is here, as we see, is like pandemics can last for years, right? Um, and we want to ensure that, you know, that, the, that there is this kind of ability to that kind of specialized committee with specialized powers that does involve members, you know, that, of the opposition and crossbenchers who might be, let's let's shine some light on this, that, and the other, right? Because this, I mean, well, this pandemic bill is going to be in place for the foreseeable future, right? And we and not uh, so we need to be able to think, you know, as the opposition have some role in in also providing, you know, and actually investigating and, and getting some transparency in how the executive is managing this current pandemic or any future ones, I think. Yeah. Speaking with Associate Professor Will Partlett from Melbourne Law School, all about Victoria's draft pandemic laws. They passed it at the lower house last week and are uh, inevitably subject to some amendments in the upper house. He's written a really informative piece for the conversation on this issue. And one of the, the amendments I understand um, to the bill negotiated with crossbenchers, and of course the government's been negotiating with crossbenchers uh, throughout the pandemic and as part of the sort of emergency Response um, was to introduce stronger safeguards against police accessing QR code data. Do you view that as a positive development if that's part of the, the ultimate legislation that's passed? Absolutely. I mean, look, the crossbenchers have gotten some good safeguards on information in particular uh, with respect to QR codes. Um, you know, so that's very significant. There's also some significant, uh, very good kind of uh, issues, kind of provisions there about transparency. So I think we have to release the health advice that is that is being used and so forth. So there's good transparency. I think there's good transparency and protection of information requirements there. So there's, you know, so the, the pandemic bill does have some good things in there. I just think we just, you know, like we, let's just get this a little bit better so that, the, yeah. you know, the parliament can play a role in providing it. Because, we, we, you know, one of our obviously clearest democratic traditions is the role of parliament. Parliament is the, most, is the elected branch. And, and to ensure that parliament has oversight of the executive, uh, I think is significant. And that's, you know, it's, and I do think, I mean, as you mentioned, I think Fiona Patton is at the moment, uh, according to the AIDS reporting on Saturday, that, you know, I think uh, at least Fiona Patton's considering introducing some amendments that would provide for some uh, parliamentary oversight in addition to these other ones to further improve this bill. Because as, as we see, it's going to become a model for the rest of Australia going forward as other states uh, grapple with how to deal with the current and future pandemic. Yeah, and I mean, based on your uh, kind of you know enjoyable weekend reading of, of this bill so far, if, if we do get a cross-parliamentary committee up, let, let's say that Fiona Patton negotiates that and that becomes part of this um, suite of reforms, do you imagine that this would give us a, a really kind of um, strong and, and reasonable platform going forward to, to manage you know, this pandemic and, and future pandemics? 
Yeah, look, I, I think it's it's certainly a start. I mean, you know, we're gonna this this bill will be amended in the future for sure. Mm. Um, you know, it's a start. It's the beginning of a conversation. But I do think it makes sense to get it right. You know, now you know, and and at least begin the process. You know, these cross-party uh, parliamentary scrutiny, you know, specialized committees are really a new emerging practice. Um, the Public Accountability Committee in New South Wales actually gave a specific term of reference, and they've been doing online oversight of specific of the, of the New South Wales executive pandemic response as well. So there's been some emerging practice in New South Wales around this. Um, lesser, there's been a little bit of emerging practice in, in Victoria, but, I, you know, I'd really like to see in this bill something which kind of brings into effect something like this to provide... Just an additional safeguard. I mean, on these, on these, you know, these. I mean, there's safeguards as you mentioned already, but I think more safeguards than just transparency and privacy, but also safeguards in terms of parliamentary scrutiny and and you know and, and essentially allowing for. Um, you know, investigation of, of the exercise of these powers. Yeah, and I mean, I'm not sort of a, an expert by any means in, in the parliamentary committees that, that exist currently and what kinds of scrutiny is placed on, on decisions that are made. But my understanding is, and you can correct me if I'm wrong here, that decisions could be reviewed by what's called the Scrutiny of Acts and Regulations Committee. Do you have a sense of how that works and whether that would be sort of fundamentally different to a future parliamentary committee? Yeah, I mean, so in the, in the current state of the bill, as we have it now, the Scrutiny and Act Regulation Committee only has kind of advisory power mm. um, to to uh, to review or to disallow. Um, it, it can it can suggest disallowance if any of the pandemic orders actually violate the charter or are unlawful. But again, it would be up to both houses of parliament to to disallow. Um, so again, it, it's you know the Scrutiny and Acts Regulation Committee is really a kind of disallowance model of a, not so much a kind of oversight or mm. investigation type of thing. So it's less of a political, more of a kind of legal kind of like let's cancel these orders. And again, I don't see that as being a particularly effective form. I, mean, I think the Scrutiny of Acts Regulation Committee has actually been quite un, not very active at all in oversight and, and disallowing any, anything in terms of uh, in terms of decree in terms of act, executions of the action uh, executive actions in the past. So. What I think would be more useful is to bring the politics in a little bit and say, look, let's, let's, let's have investigations. Let's see how it's being inv- investigated. Allow crossbenchers to discuss and to, and to think through and, and to really put some pressure on the executive if they see, you know, some you know, abuse of discretion, perhaps, or something like that. Yeah, well, it's, um, it's, it's a complex issue, but a really important issue as well. And I really appreciate you spending some time with us on Triple R to, to help it um, appear a bit more digestible. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Will. Thanks. Thanks, Bill. Cheers. Associate Professor Will Partlett from the University of Melbourne talking all about the new pandemic laws for Victoria, which um, have passed the lower house but subject to amendments, likely amendments going forward in the upper house. Um, You can read his work on this in the conversation. Um, His article went up there last week. Triple R on FM, digital, online and via the app. Thanks so much for being here. It means a lot. Australia's ties with India run deep. The country is one of our largest trading partners and we have a very strong diplomatic presence there. There are also, of course, increasing numbers of Indian-born people calling Australia home. The country is the largest source of permanent migration to Australia and accounts for the largest numbers of new Australian citizens. Despite all this, however, there's still a sense that Indian culture has not necessarily been fully embraced or that broader Australian society uh, probably identifies with cultures of people who have been here for a very long 
time. And uh, further to that, there have only been very few Indian Australians elected to parliaments around the nation. Journalist Artie Bedigeri traces some of these issues in a brilliant essay in the new edition of Australian Foreign Affairs and ponders how future Australian society might more meaningfully integrate with various aspects of Indian cultures and what that might look like as well. And I'm very happy to have Artie joining me on the line. Great to have you on Triple R. Artie, welcome. Hi, Dylan. I'm so super chuffed to hear you describe me as brilliant. <laughs> well, it's a fantastic essay, um, and I'm really glad it was included in the latest Australian Foreign Affairs because it, it really does touch on um, some really important issues for, for us in Australia. And I think probably a, a logical place to begin the discussion is where you actually start the essay with an anecdote reflecting on artist Sapna Chandu's work at the 2014 Melbourne Fringe Festival. Describe for us that project and why you thought it was relevant to what you wanted to explain explore in this piece? Yeah, so um, Chapman actually reached out and asked me to do some work towards it, which is how I knew about it, but it was a, it was a um, art installation that was um, part of the 2014 Fringe Festival. It was called Quality Chai, Chai is in tea, and then Quality KW, you know, kind of that, that cute spelling of it, which is actually a brand of ice cream in India, mm. like a real, like, street it's everywhere. Um, so the installation was called Quality China. It was a cafe set up. So the idea was you, you walk in to this installation and it's like you enter another realm. It's like you were in an Australia set 40 years in the future where there's been an Indian colonialist takeover <laughs> of the country. So Australia is ruled by India, so it's taken on a lot of Indian culture. So, you know, it's English, but everyone drinks masala chai, everyone speaks in this kind of patois, like, you know, English, but with an Indian accent and the few kind of little Indianisms thrown in, um, you know, the oral, um, you know, the, the, the soundtrack of oral streetscape of like tooting horns. And then there was a news break every hour in the radio where they talk about, you know, oh, there was a collision between a tuk-tuk and a tram on <laughs> Flinders Street or, you know, we're going to, at the time, um, being gay illegal in India. It's not anymore. It's been decriminalised permanently, which is good news. But um, at the time it was illegal, so there'd be like a news story about that. And maybe, you know, maybe um, India will bring in these laws into its colony in Australia too. So just those sort of things. So just like this alternative parallel universe. Um, And I just thought it was such a fascinating way to explore the way that cultures change and they adapt and mm. they kind of re reform themselves. And this I like at the time when I was growing up in Melbourne there weren't that many Indians. But now I think anyone walking down the street in Melbourne can look around and as Sapna put it and I quoted, it's literally like a sea of brown. Which is, you know, kind of for us because we never had that growing up. But how is Australian society kind of going to reshape itself and reformulate um, to kind of take into account these new kind of cultural ideas that um, it's kind of this, it's pretty new Indian and subcontinental population will bring? And I just thought that was a really interesting idea to explore. I didn't go into it in a lot of depth, not as much as I'd like to in this piece because the, the remit was really broad and there were lots of other things I wanted, wanted to cover off as well. Mm. But I think it's, yeah, it's a really interesting thing to, to ponder. 
Absolutely. And, and I mean, just to trace for us briefly the the history of migration to Australia? Because in the essay, you note that it you know, really traces back um, to the ancient landmass of, of Gondwanaland. But of course, there's been a, a more recent real um, increase in people from India coming to Australia as sort of permanent migrants and, and families coming over as well. Give us a brief sort of sketch, I suppose, um, of how people from India have, have come to be here. Look, most people think that migration from India and the, and, and the rest of the subcontinent is pretty new, like mm. the last, you know, 30 years or so, but it's actually not. Like, as you mentioned, Gondwana land, that was back, you know, 180 million years ago when the, the shape of land masses were really different. And Australia and what is now Australia and what is now modern India were actually connected into one kind of supercontinent called Gondwana or Gondwana land. They were actually next to each other and then, you know, Australia kind of broke away. It was all that drift that happened um, bit by bit over the many years. But there's actually still some DNA links, like, Mm. between Indigenous Australians and Indians, especially the the ones from way down south. Like, facially, they look really similar. But um, there have been a few studies that have found actual genetic links as well. Like, um, one of the ones I mentioned is a 2013 study of Indigenous Australian DNA, which suggests that there might have been migration about 4,000 years ago. And even if you don't want to accept that, there are some similarities that you just can't ignore, like um, the street dogs in India. They're everywhere. They're actually a breed. They're called a pariah dog. They look really, really similar to things. And another thing is that, um, you know, Indigenous dot art painting, there's a lot of different um, Indigenous types of painting in India, and one of them is called Gond Art, G-O-N-D, from Central India, and that's also dot painting as well. And a lot of artists connection, that there are similarities there. And then kind of fast forward to the 1800s, and a lot of South Asians were coming to Australia, um, firstly as labour for the British, but later as camel drivers, but also camel owners, kind of suggest that there was, you know, wealth and prestige, um, you know, because there is that attached to ownership, right? Mm. Um, But they were coming to Australia to kind of make their fortunes and have some adventures and then go back home, like with their money and, you know all these fantastic tales of what they'd done. Kind of like what backpackers do these days. That really occurred to me when I was reading about this. Yeah. Um, and we call them, like everyone knows about cameleers and the, the role they've played. There's actually a film um, called The Furnace that's um, available, which is you know, set about 100 years ago in Western Australia, which is a really good kind of insight into the world of cameleers. But everyone calls them Afghans or Garms, as in the train, the Garm. But they, they came from all over the subcontinent. Um, you know, modern-day Afghanistan, modern-day Pakistan, and then all across northern India, all the way over to West Bengal. Like, they've actually found books in mosques, um, you know, that date back to the 1850s, which kind of shows that there were bullies in um, in Australia at that time, which no-one really knew about. Mm. Um, so, you know, there weren't that many, but there was still, you know, they played a really pivotal role in the development of Australia, like, you know, really pivotal role in Australian history. Then a lot of them went on to be hawkers. You know, they kind of have a horse and a cart and they'd go from town to town selling various goods, like especially to kind of, you know, pretty remote um, homesteads, you know, who didn't have a car and couldn't get to town. And they they actually played a really pivotal role in those communities and became real fixtures in those communities. Like in Benalla in Victoria, there was one guy called Siva Singh and he became like an, you know, a real stalwart of the community. You know, everyone knew him. There's actually a memorial to him in Benalla now. 
but he was granted... What makes him really interesting is that he was granted Australian citizenship um, in the early 1900s, but then they brought in the white Australian mm. policy. So in 1915, he was struck off the rolls and his citizenship was revoked. But he fought it and he took his fight all the way to the High Court and managed to get it back. So... Um, that was, you know, a really great thing that he did, but it also is an insight into what a lot of people um, suffered. You know, once the white Australia policy came in, the landscape really changed. Absolutely. And then and we have um, people, you know, starting to arrive more once the white, white Australia policy ended, of course, in the 1970s. And then this um, this huge increase, as you note in, in the essay, by 2000, there were around 37,000 Indian-born um, people living in Australia. In June 2020, it was 721,000. So it's a, a huge increase over the, the past couple of decades in particular. But taking into account that sort of broad history, it, it's really important, I think, to acknowledge that because the essay really is about how sort of mainstream Australian society could, you know, better sort of, um, I suppose, learn from and, and, and integrate with these various Indian cultures that have actually been here for quite some time, even though there's been a particular surge um, most recently. What do you imagine that might look like? Because often, you know, cricket is an, an obvious touchstone for that sort of, um, uh, you know, I suppose, you know, white Australian culture and, and Indian culture being so um, sort of heavily invested in cricket as well. But, but what else do you think sort of could happen in Australia, given there are so many more people from, from India living here. And, and as you say, we encounter sort of Indian pe- people and Indian culture um, almost on a daily basis, depending on where we live. It's actually really exciting, mm. but, like for me. It's exciting to see the way that, you know, cultures are kind of integrating and moulding and changing. Um, Sapna, the artist who I interviewed, she pointed out that, you know, the colour run that you do, fun run, the 5K colour run, mm. that was actually based off... Uh, an Indian festival called Holi, which is like, you know, tells it around Easter time and everyone celebrates by like throwing coloured powder at each other. It's just like this fun thing that you do. Yeah. <laughs> so the colour one actually was based off of those principles. So that's one, um, like that's one example of this kind of cultural emission. Um, another is like, oh yeah, I opened up the supermarket brochure the other day and I saw this, this like little like illustration with a happy Diwali on it. I was like, that would never have happened in the mm. past. So that was really cool. But then, you know, you can kind of also look to what's happened overseas where the Indian communities are really entrenched. So in the US, um, it's got a pretty sizable Indian community, like Indian expatriate community. Um, but they're really successful. It's the most successful minority in America. Like their median income is twice the median income of the general population. And they've also broken into every single, you know, all those impenetrable industries. It's not just about having a small business, but, you know, you've got, like, Mindy Kaling in Hollywood. You've got people in, in law, um, like Preet Bharara, and then, of course, Kamala Harris in politics. Mm. So these have kind of really broken through, and they've made a name for themselves, and they're really successful. You know, Indra Nui, who was the CEO of Pepsi for a long time. Um, uh, what's his name? The guy who runs Google. Oh, what's his name? To me. But you know, you see, in <laughs> I've gone blank as well. <laughs> and he looks he's identical to a friend of mine. That's the most um, yeah, you just see Indian names everywhere, like in public life um, and in spheres of influence. So that's really interesting, I think. Mm. And um, you know, Indians there have kind of framed their own their their own kind of role in the society. Like they've held on to their old their old ways, their old customs, but then they've taken on 
mechanisms. Um, you know, one thing to know about Indians just generally, generically as a community, they're very entrepreneurial. So I think something about that American system, you know, capitalism and individualism just really works for them. Yeah. Speaking In the with... UK... So I just want to remind listeners, sorry, speaking with Artie Bettigary all about her piece for the latest Australian Foreign Affairs. Um, it's called New Wave, Australia's Nation-Changing Indian Diaspora. And, um, yeah, please continue, Artie. Oh, I was going to say, um, just in the UK, again, the community has been there for decades, um, if not centuries, and they have, again, just kind of formed their own culture. And I think the most feasible way is through music. So, like, um, you know, Bangra music, which is from Punjab, mm. that is that kind of melded with, you know, garage and rap music in the 90s. And then he had, like, new forms of music emerge, like Bangra muffin. And the, the main proponent of this was um, a guy called Apache Indian, um, who, you know, I grew up listening to yeah. in Melbourne in the 90s. <laughs> we all listened to. So, that yeah, that's really interesting. And I'd, I'd love to see something like that happen here. Of course, here we've got El Fresh the Lion. He's yep. like a rapper from... Western Sydney, and I really love how he's taken his own culture and he's using that to gain, you know, prominence and um, popularity. But, I mean, he hasn't formed a new, like, he hasn't come up with a new form of music, but just what he's doing, he's not he's not exceeding to the kind of more normal, normative, cultural touchstones, but he's, like, taking his own culture and putting it out into Australia, so I think that's really um, noteworthy. Yeah, so something else that you touch on in the essay which I found interesting was that there's often a, a kind of siloing, I suppose, of, of particular Indian communities in, in Australia, and perhaps even more so than in the past when there are relatively few people here, that people from sort of different backgrounds, and of course India's, you know, incredibly diverse, um, tended to sort of commingle because there weren't many people from those places in Australia then. But now as there, there are sort of increasing numbers um, you note that there's almost kind of a, a, a divide, I suppose, or, or a siloing between, you know, those who came before, maybe from the 1970s, and those who have come more recently, and, and even those who come from very specific areas in India as well. Tell us about that effect. Could you actually speak to someone who's, um, you know, more recently come to Australia and you had to sort of go onto Facebook and troll Facebook to find somebody to speak to um, f- for this essay? Yeah, that's absolutely right. So I kind of, I wanted to speak to people who, you know, were kind of from all different parts of life. So I spoke to someone who's been here for 50 years and then I spoke to someone who's just been here for a couple of years and is at the very journey trying to migrate to Australia. And you're absolutely right with that idea of the siloing. I always say to people to think of India as not as one country, but as the EU. Mm. So it's like a connected collective you know, individual states, each with their own distinct personality and culture and economy and, um, you know, like customs and like cultural practices and everything. So it's, it kind of puts that more into focus when you kind of look at how um, Indians are. Like they're not, they're not one united lot and that is replicated in um, ex- expatriate communities as well. And especially, you know, now there are so many Indians here, like what, seven. 21,000, I think you said. So it's really easy to kind of hive off and just hang out with the people you know or people from your village or your town or from your language group or, you know, your culture, your religion. Um, So there's not much intermingling between those communities. So when I went to do this reporting, I realised I actually don't know anyone who's kind of newly arrived. So I had to put a a post up in Facebook and I had heaps of people contact me, but then, you know, just kind of hosting them 
Pat Gowra, Punchal, who's got a really interesting and compelling story of his own, and also incredibly articulate, like just kind of laid out for me the, the real issues, the visa issues especially, that new, you know, aspiring migrants from India and I do have Artie Bettigeri back on the line, very unfortunately dropped out some momentarily. But I think that was really interesting what you were talking about, Artie, in relation to the, the visa issues that, that people who um, you know, have arrived from India more recently have experienced, because that sort of brings us to the way that um, you know, migration has been used as a real economic boom for Australia and particularly international students as well. Um, and in that whole mix is kind of the, the India travel ban and, and the sense that um, you know, international students as well aren't aren't sort of treated with all that respect and, and excluded from certain safeguards in the Australian community too. I wonder how you, you view that sort of playing in, I suppose, to the ability for, let's say, you know, mainstream Australian society and Australian culture fully embracing the diversity of Indian cultures that exist out there in the context of those sort of, you know, broader um, labour movements and federal government policies. Yeah, so many really interesting points you've, you've touched upon. Um, I suppose the, the biggest takeaway of what, what I wrote about was, you know, too politically, like from the, the, the wide angle lens view is that Australia has a lot invested in a strategic relationship with India. You know, we're looking at all the, you know, the, the quad and, you know, efforts to kind of contain China and diplomatic outreach programs. Um, you know, India's certainly one of the biggest... Uh, diplomatic priorities for Australia. There's four missions and more than 50 diplomats stationed there, and they just want to make an impact to make connections anywhere they can. But the point that I want to make is that they're ignoring the diaspora in Australia, mm. you know, and it really is a bit of a, you know, Indians come here and they have to start out as the underclass, you know, Uber drivers working in um, working in um, supermarkets, like all the, the drudge work. But they're actually really, they're well-connected. They're from across the entire country. They've come with ideas. You know, as I said before, they're very entrepreneurial. So it's really this fantastic resource that, you know, is being overlooked, you know, just not capitalised on, much to Australia's detriment, I think. Um, the point I was making about the visa situation is, yes, despite this, you know, huge desire to have a great relationship with India, Australia makes it really difficult they want to migrate here, and they do want to migrate here, you know, for lifestyle and economic reasons, you know, for the chance of having a really good future, all of that. But they're told, okay, you need 65 points to even come here, and that's really hard to get. You know, you have to have a um, amount of money in the bank. You've got to have a certain education level. You come here, you know, your parents might sell um, land or property or just borrow money from everyone they know because, of course, Indians earn a lot less money than we do in Australia for them to get that money together. They invest very heavily in that child who's coming to university here because university studies, their pathway to migration, they start out studying and then they get a job and, you know, then get citizenship or um, permanent residency. But Australia keeps changing the parameters. They keep changing the goalposts. So someone gets 65 points and then arbitrarily they're told, oh, no, you need 100 points now. Mm. So it's just this kind of constant limbo land. And since the people... I've actually been approached by some people who say, thank you for talking about my living hell. Yeah. Like, it's so difficult for us. You know, we just don't know. We're just not given any information. We're not given extensions. Like, during COVID, a lot of international students weren't given that kind of fundamental goodwill gesture of having their um, 
having their visas extended to take into account the fact that they couldn't go back to India. Um, and then they're told, oh, OK, the way to kind of alleviate this is to go and do more study. And they're like, I've got a day job, which is in my chosen field of um, specialisation. Why do I need to go and do a course in whatever hairdressing, which is completely unrelated yeah. to what I do, just to get the points to stay here? And a lot of them are like, I can't help just this way to prop up the ailing education sector. So it comes back to this real sense for, for Indians that they're just cash cows mm. for Australia. Like Australia's just there to milk them for everything they've got. And I just don't know sets you up. Leaving people with that feeling sets you up for a good future relationship. Yeah, absolutely. And um, and look, your you, essay touches on so many important issues. It's a really fascinating read. Um, we've just managed to sort of really scratch the surface here this morning, but um, I really appreciate your time and, um, and yeah, look forward to, to what might happen with, um, with future kind of uh, Indian-Australian culture meshing and merging and, um, and uh, you know, manifesting in really interesting forms going forward. Thank you so much, Dylan. I love Triple R. I'm so glad I had a chance to be on... Awesome. Thanks so much. It's um, great to have you on the station as well. It's um, Arti Bedegheri talking all about her article in the new edition of Australian Foreign Affairs. It's called New Wave, Australia's Nation-Changing Indian Diaspora and can highly recommend um, that particular essay. It's uh, in the October edition of that publication. You're listening to a Triple R podcast. Discover more podcasts from Triple R exploring science, technology, food, books, social issues, politics and more. To listen, hit up the Triple R website or your favourite podcast platform. The scourge of rape and sexual assault has been in the spotlight recently through the tireless advocacy of people like Grace Tame and also, of course, an allegation surrounding former Attorney General Christian Porter, which, of course, he has strenuously denied. And while processes exist in our legal system for bringing criminal cases, it's clear that when victims do come forward, they're often left even more traumatised by a system that has long favoured male perpetrators with little regard for survivors' well-being. Michael Bradley, is a managing partner at Mark Lawyers. He's written a really illuminating essay on this very issue as part of Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series. And he joins me on the line now to talk all about it. Michael, welcome to Triple R. Good morning. And so you run a, a commercial law firm and through your writing in Crikey, which I've long enjoyed, I had you pigeonholed sort of in my own mind as dealing with mainly media and regulatory law. What's been your experience with survivors of, of rape and sexual assault? Yeah, um, started to get involved in the area um, well, shortly after the, the sort of beginning of the Me Too movement in Australia. Um, particularly sort of bit through working with with media and, and journalists um, we uh, we started to get involved um, helping out um, on the sort of survivor side and helping survivors navigate various aspects of the legal system and then um, we were heavily involved in the better speak campaign to mm. um, for law reform and, um, and that sort of yeah I've kind of worked with a large number of, of survivors over the past few years um, and uh, learnt a lot 
um, as a result. Yeah, and you tell some of their stories in in this piece. Much of the essay focuses on the story of Mia, and I think you know personal stories are, are, are crucial, and, and I suppose particularly for many of us men who don't have direct experience of being a survivor or a victim of rape. Give us an insight into her story and why you wanted to tell that um, as part of your exploration of this issue. Yeah, sure. Well, I think yeah, I mean I, I think these sort of you know issues are. Um, well illustrated by um, by stories of you know people's real experiences and I the stories I selected for the book or the essay were um, kind of deliberately complicated mm. ones to to sort of reflect you know the, the realities of um, you know of rape and sexual assault which is that it, it, for the most part it's it's not the popularly imagined stranger danger type scenario you know the vast majority of survivors know their perpetrator mm-hmm. uh, that, that's the reality and so Mia's story was um, you know, a pretty typical one she, she was the victim of um, uh, a, a significant number of, of incidents of rape at the hands of her intimate partner uh, over a six month period and um, ultimately she, she finally extricated herself from the relationship and then a couple of months later made the decision to go to the police and report what had happened to her and that was obviously a difficult decision. She then went uh, through the police investigation process and that's when I met her. She um, um, contacted me and we um, started supporting her in, uh, during the course of the investigation. And then, uh, and that all sort of seemed to be going well. And she had a very supportive, sympathetic um, female detective, um, a sexual assault specialist who, you know, was seemed to be doing all the right things and, um, you know, believed her. And um, and then, after a few months out of the blue, uh, she was called into the police station one day and and told in very brutal clinical terms um, that the police were dropping the case and wouldn't be prosecuting. Uh, and it was a um, her experience, regrettably, was um, one that I, I've been coming across a lot, um, where survivors are really having a, a terrible um, experience of the criminal justice system. It isn't a surprising one once you sort of learn how the system works. Um, but for each survivor um, who goes through that, it's a it's a horrific experience and, and a deeply re-traumatising one. And that's a sort of a big part of um, what motivated me to write the essay was, was the the disconnect between the legal system response to rape survivors uh, and what they're actually seeking from it. And you know that leads to awful um, disappointment frustration, re-traumatisation, compounding of harm. And we know and have known for a long time that that that's what it does, and yet we're not addressing that fundamental problem. Yeah, absolutely. And and what was was striking was when uh, Mia was going to the police, and, and as you say, seemed to develop a, a real trust with the, the officer she was working with, and, mm. and spent quite a bit of time with as well. Um, but then ultimately mm. was sort of left, you know, alone outside the, the police station, having gone through an incredible ordeal, and um, and really didn't have a, a support network around her right at that time. Didn't even know that when she went into the police station 
situation, that's what was going to happen. So how much does that reflect um, the way that, that the system deals with these issues over and above, you know, individual compassion, which of course police officers can have, but um, but as you highlight in, in the essay, they're, they're sort of there to do a slightly different job and, and don't always have um, survivors' um, uh, best interests necessarily at heart. That, that's exactly right. And yeah, I mean, that experience, as I said, was sort of depressingly familiar. And and it, yeah, it, it comes from a couple of sources. Um, one is that um, police and, and you know, people in, involved in the system are for the most part not trained in how to deal with survivors. They're not trauma-informed. They're not given the training that they need to be able to effectively handle the very particular vulnerabilities of survivors. Consequently, um, you know, really appalling mishandling occurs. And, you know, in Mia's case, that wasn't because the police officer involved didn't care about her or didn't want to do the right thing, wasn't sympathetic. Um, she just... she having reached a point where she had decided or a, or a senior officer had decided that the case wasn't going ahead, she just dropped Mia like a stone um, and you know, didn't even take the most basic step of ensuring that Mia had a support person with her um, when she was given the bad news. I mean, that you, know, you don't need a lot of training to, to realise that that would have been a good idea. Mm. Um, so, you know, very fundamental, simple failings at every step of the system, which would be so easy to rectify. But the bigger problem there, and what it reflects, is that, um, you know, a survivor goes in typically when they go to the police and they engage with the criminal justice system. My, what I've observed is, and this was certainly in May's case, that they don't understand what is going to happen when they do that. They think that quite naturally that, well, this is my case. You know, I've been raped, this is my case, I'm going to the police, they're going to help me prosecute it. That's not what happens at all. Once you go to the police, it is not your case anymore. It's theirs. And their, and their job is to prosecute, investigate and prosecute. And there is is different from that of the survivor. Their interests are representing the state, and if a perpetrator is prosecuted, it's the state against the perpetrator, not the survivor against the perpetrator. The survivor becomes a witness, and they lose all control over the process, and that stripping of control um, in some ways reflects the loss of agency they've already suffered in the crime itself. And so there's this sort of compounding, you know, loss. But very few survivors realise that that's what's going to happen. And it comes as an awful surprise um, and a kind of repeated surprise as they get deeper and deeper into the system. And if it goes to court, that gets even worse. Um, and so there's this sort of failure at the outset to, you know, to to kind of address that, that fundamental misunderstanding and, you know, which is why we're setting them up for failure. Mm. Speaking with lawyer and, and writer Michael Bradley, all about his piece for Monash University's uh, publishings in the National Interest series. His piece is called System Failure, Failure the Silencing of Rape Survivors. And, and you, as part of this essay, you provide some historical context for where the charge of rape comes from, where it's originally essentially kind of a, a property crime. It's about stealing mm. um, stealing a, uh, someone's wife, essentially, um, which, you know, mm. is so telling, isn't it, in, in, in a lot of ways for why 
why these particular laws don't sort of function in the way that we might hope they do. Um, to what extent do, do these issues that you highlight in the piece reflect the fact that, you know, traditionally parliaments and, and those who have made laws and administered uh, laws and, and been sort of in courts and, and judges and that sort of thing have, um, you know, for the most part tended to be men? Oh, you know, fundamentally, um, mm. yeah. I mean, the, the, yeah, as you say, you know, rape was originally conceived as a as a property crime. Um, the, you know, the, the origin of the word rape is a forcible taking or an abduction. So, the woman, the, the actual victim of the crime, was not conceptualised as the victim, but the, the man who owned her was, and. And as that sort of developed over time um, into a crime against the person, that is the woman, quite a lot of that sort of, um, those elements of it as a property crime carried over. And so the the modern law of rape is not very modern at all. Um, And um, it focuses very heavily on the concept of consent, um, but it treats consent as a sort of unknowable quantity within the mind of the woman, and um, and, it, and our, our current law of rape still allows a very wide scope for a man who has committed an act of sexual violence against a woman without her consent to be acquitted quite properly under the law. Um, because of his mistaken but reasonable belief about her consent, um, if and you know and that, in, the law doesn't require him to um, it doesn't require anything to have been communicated to him for him to reasonably believe that consent was present. So there's this enormous scope for um, for a woman to be raped, and for the law's response to it ultimately to be well to that um, no crime committed um, that's one of the that's sort of the main reason why the um, the likelihood of a rapist being prosecuted and and convicted is well below one percent mm. now you know there is no other type of crime where we would accept a, a conviction rate of less than one percent. You know, we, we would say that is a joke and a very and a very sick joke. But we continue to tolerate that in relation to rape. Isn't it startling to how the the very function of those laws and and the difficulty of of proving an absence of consent, an absence of consent, sorry, and and um, this idea that you're you know really determining someone's intent, which is uh, you know next to impossible to prove, then leads to certain circumstances where survivors are encouraged by police officers to then try to establish. Um, in a sense, kind of gather evidence and establish pretext on the past on the part of their abuser by calling them and and you know trying to get them talking about the the, the crime that they have allegedly committed. I mean, that's what Mia was encouraged to do was to call um, her abuser and try to get him talking so the police could then gather evidence of of what he had had allegedly done. And um, that seems like you know an incredibly distressing and, and and damaging thing to go through when you're already trying to to address this trauma you've experienced and go through the the proper legal process in doing so. Yeah, oh, exactly, and it's such a perfect illustration of the problem. You know, that, that when I first um, met Mia, that was exactly where she was at in the investigation. The police were putting a lot of pressure on her 
to make a, what they call a pretext call to her perpetrator, who she you know, completely disengaged with, never wanted to speak to or hear from again. Um, but the police were saying, well, look, you know, obviously there's no evidence of the rapes um, apart from your testimony. Um, and he's going to say that, they were, that all the acts were consensual. So quite understandably, from the police perspective, um, in order to secure a conviction, they're really keen to get you know, admission evidence, and the best way to do that is um, is to get the victim to call the perpetrator out of the blue and and get him to say something incriminating on tape. Now, you know, I understand that, but you know, from a forensic perspective, um, it's gold. It's basically, you know, it'll win the case. Um, and yet, um, from the survivor's perspective, what could be worse? You know what? What else could you do to them to to, to guarantee uh, that they'll be re-traumatised, but subject them to engaging with their perpetrator about what the perpetrator did to them? Mm. You know, I mean, it, it, it it's gobsmacking when you think about it that way, and yet that is what the system um, drives. And and then there's you know there's this intense pressure on survivors to do that, and if they refuse then the police are saying, well, how do you expect us to get a conviction? You're not even helping. Now, you know, I'm sympathetic to the police's position on that. They're doing their job um, and um, trying to secure a conviction. But it's madness that, you know, that that's the only way that that um, we can proceed and that, you know, that, that's the system that we, we continue to perpetuate knowing the harm that that necessarily does to someone who's already been deeply harmed. Yeah, and you don't set out to propose kind of perfect solutions to this. You do a really great job of highlighting the nature of the problem and, and the really sort of you know human side to that, which you know many um, many people, many women are, are familiar with, very sadly. Um, but um, as part of this, I mean, it, it's apparent that that Mia doesn't even necessarily want to achieve a conviction. That's just what the police kind of need to do when when the state brings brings a case such as this. So, what alternative opportunities um, kind of do exist or should exist for better achieving justice and and not leaving survivors re-traumatised by reporting what's happened to them? Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, that's the problem, right? You know, we offer these sort of very binary options to survivors and, and, you know, the sort of by convention, you know, what we expect survivors to do is to report to the police. Because, and that's because we assume as a society that that's what they want to do, that they, you know, that what a survivor wants is for their perpetrator to be convicted and punished. Um, my observation from talking to a lot of survivors is that that's um, very rarely um, at the top of the list of priorities in terms of what, what a survivor is actually seeking. So there's, that's sort of where the disconnect lies, but our system doesn't offer them anything currently uh, as, a, as an alternative. What, um, what I've observed um, the majority of survivors um, to be saying they want is for their perpetrator to take responsibility for their actions to be forced to stand up and and face what they did and what the survivor experienced and you know accepting in that that, that you know there will always be two versions of what happened um, and 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 it's all you know a lot of it's very subjective but but 
the best way to deal with the, and address the reality of what the survivor experienced, which isn't really in question or shouldn't really be in question despite all the rape myths that exist. Um, well, that's the best way to do it, to, to for, for perpetrators to have to stand up and take responsibility for, for their own actions rather than have it just sort of placed upon them. Um, so... One possibility uh, is is to explore forms of um, of justice which are not about criminal sort of proof beyond reasonable doubt and punishment, but um, but you know an accounting to sort of you know to to um, a form where where the parties are brought together and um, and there's a you know there's an exploration of what happened. And, and and a taking of responsibility more along the lines of sort of, you know, truth and reconciliation mm. rather than um, just, you know, the binary of, of crime and punishment. Um, now, it's not, you know, not appropriate for every case um, and, you know, challenging and controversial, um, but... Um, but absolutely worth exploring. There are models overseas that we, we tried similar processes in relation to minor crimes um, here. Um, certainly, you know, what we know is that the system is broken. It doesn't respond effectively or appropriately. So we need to be imaginative. And, and the place where we need to start that conversation is where we've never started it before, which is with the needs of survivors. We need to be hearing first and foremost from them about what they actually need, what do they seek, what, you know, what systemic, what are they seeking from a systemic response. Then we can design the response around that rather than just sort of, you know, carrying on as we are saying, well, that's, you know, that's your option. Um, go to the police and, um, and roll the dice on the criminal justice process, yeah. knowing that there's almost no chance of a conviction. And what, what advice would you have for survivors who are considering embarking on that process or are sort of have already done so? What's um, sort of some advice to, to, you know, I suppose best protect themselves and, and have um, sort of people properly advocating for them in their corner? Yeah, I, I, I mean, the only way for a survivor to go into that process is with very open eyes. Mm. Um, and, you know, I I can't in conscience advise a survivor to report to the police mm. because I know what's going to happen to them. However, um, if if that is their choice, um, and, I, you know, and I would certainly support it, um, then they need to be fully equipped understanding what it is they're subjecting themselves to so that they're not ambushed quite so badly um, by the experience. Um, it's really important that they understand, um, you know, that it won't be their case. They won't have control. They don't get to make decisions. The police won't tell them everything that's going on, that things, in fact, may be kept from them. Um, ultimately, they're going to find themselves in court being cross-examined aggressively, um, and the whole burden of the case is going to fall on them. Um, our experience has been that um, it is really beneficial for survivors to have their own legal support going through that process. Um, we've we've provided that kind of you know, a number of cases now, and although the police don't like it because there's no sort of 
for that here and they don't think that survivors need their own legal support, um, actually it's really beneficial to have you know, someone who's just on your side, independent of the process and the system, helping you understand how it works and sometimes, if necessary, advocating on your behalf. We can't play an active role in the investigation or the prosecution. We don't have any say in what happens. But, um, you know, otherwise the survivor is on their own. Because, mm. as I said, the, their interest and the police's interests are not the same. So no matter how sympathetic and supportive um, and nice the police and prosecutors are to them, um, they're not on the same page and they never will be. Yeah, such an important issue and um, really appreciate you spending so much time with us on Triple R this morning. Uh, Michael, thanks so much. That's an absolute pleasure. Michael Bradley there, lawyer and writer. He's one of the managing partners of Mark Lawyers and um, his new essay, which we've been talking about, is part of Monash University Publishing's In the National Interest series. It's called System Failure, the Silencing of Rape Survivors. And um, if uh, this interview has raised um, any issues for you, then uh, if if you or or someone you know is experiencing family violence, you can phone 1-800-RESPECT for counselling advice and support for men who might have anger, relationship or parenting issues, you can call the Men's Referral Service on 1300 766 Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.